and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Happy holidays to you all. We are here again, eh? I can't believe another year has passed. Our team is wishing all of you happy holidays and hoping it's a restful, safe, and fun season for you all. We will have one more podcast this year, a short wrap-up podcast where you will all get to meet Maria Paula Rubiano, our assistant editor who joined earlier this year and is an incredible journalist in her own right. We will take a look ahead for what's to come in the new year, so please check that out. A reminder, we are here every two weeks, so if you like what you hear, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform that you use. So today's guest is the first from our current cohort of fellows. I'm so excited. I talked to Dr. Valerisa Jogatti, an alumna of the University of Arizona who received both her PhD and Master's of Science in Environmental Science with an emphasis in microbiology. Val talks about growing up on the Navajo Nation, including indigenous people in water management decisions and balancing the researcher life while being a new mother. Enjoy. All right, I am now joined by Valerisa Gaddy, our very first podcast with Cohort 4. Val, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing wonderful. And where are you today? I'm located in Tucson, Arizona. Sorry about that. Um, I'm located in Tucson, Arizona, and I'm right now I'm in my office, so working. Is it, I'm, I'm just assuming I'm in uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. It is cold snowing we're talking here in mid-november what is what is it like there is it hot um it's actually really nice weather and outside it's probably about like 65 right now so perfect weather and it's gonna be about high 70s today so wow yes that is perfect i had it in (laughs) my mind i had it 100 degrees and uh sweltering so uh i'm glad i'm glad it's not that well, let's talk about where you're where you're from originally. So, not too far from there, but uh, I'm a little bit geographically ignorant of the Southwest. So, tell me a little bit about growing up on the Navajo Nation. Yeah, so I'm from the Navajo Nation. Um, so it's um, in the Four Corners region between New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. Uh, so I grew up on the border of Arizona and New Mexico, which uh, on, in a small little town called um, um, Gallup, New Mexico. But I also spent a lot of time on in uh, Lupton, Arizona, so right on the border. Uh, um, uh, it was great. I loved growing up there. Um, there was a lot of things that uh, I feel like I was able to do um, that I wouldn't have done otherwise, like, um, like learning to drive. I learned that at a really early age, like nine, 10, <laughs> because there's no one on the roads. Um, so, uh, things, things like that, like you, you don't really take into consideration. They're just kind of normal. Like all, all my cousins and friends, they all learned to drive early as well. Um, but when I went to college, I realized that was normal. <laughs> so, um, but then there was some um, other aspects of like 
the lack of running water, lack of uh, electricity, inf- um, there's not that much infrastructure or the infrastructure is very poor. So um, realizing that there was some disparities in that, especially after going to college and realizing that uh, our the Navajo Nation is a, such a poor community when you really think about it in the grand scheme of things. Now, I don't want to probe on kind of the, the discomfort, but I am curious when you say that you didn't realize that, maybe you realized it more in college. I mean, when you're a kid, though, is, is a lack of running water or, or electricity, is that something that's top of mind or was that just your reality? It was just our reality. I mean, I went to school with, you know, with kids where like um, that they didn't have running water or electricity and like myself included in it, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't weird. It was the norm for us. And um, I think that when I think about it now, it, it is sad and, and <laughs> uh, it saddens me now. Um, but before when I was like actually living it, it, it was, it was normal. Uh, everyone hauled water. Um, people, uh, you know, I mean, Gallup is still a place where um, even today that um, bottles of water are sold um, per capita more than any place almost in the country. <laughs> and it's just because there's still there's um, no running water. Um, I t- not even talk about drinking water. I mean, that's just something that I grew up with and I didn't realize that it wasn't normal to, you know, have all your water come from, from a bottle. (laughs) So. Right. Right. And on maybe the more positive side, was there, was cultural history part of your upbringing was kind of the history of Navajo in that region, something that uh, was embraced in your household growing up? Yes. um, My mom was very traditional. Uh, She tried to, um, teach us Navajo. Um, it's a very difficult language to learn. Um, so I don't have a great grasp of it. Um, but my husband, his first language is Navajo. So he, um, him and my mom are able to communicate in their native language and they're really trying to teach my son that. Um, but yeah, I feel like my mom really, uh, made sure that the, our, our foundation of our household um, hold a lot of um, Navajo traditions and cultures. And, and even to this day, she's still trying to make sure that my son has a lot of those um, uh, cultures and traditions um, instilled in him while he's, while he's growing up. So, yeah. That is excellent. And I, uh, I definitely want to hear more about that, that little boy um, <laughs> later on, but first let's talk a little bit more about you. So, as you moved throughout your education, um, where and and how did you know that you wanted to be a researcher, and what did that path look like for you? Um, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know. Uh, I think, like a lot of people, when you go to college, you have this thought and this dream that you're going to be something great. And for me, that was going to be a lawyer when I went off to college. <laughs> I quickly realized that I hated law. <laughs> I hated policy. I hated all my my criminal justice classes. So, um, but science has always been 
something that I was always doing really well in. Um, when I was um, like a freshman, sophomore, I was taking um, the AP classes that were meant for seniors. <clears throat> so even um, by the time I was a senior in high school, I opted, I finished every single science class at high school. So I kind of had to go do um, online um, classes just to keep up and <laughs> uh, be able to graduate on time. <laughs> so, but, but I was, I was already um, really love science. And so, um, but that wasn't something I wanted to do. It was kind of funny. I, I went, I went to New Mexico State University for my undergrad and it wasn't until, um, I saw or actually met, um, one of my professors there, her name was Dr. Ungas and she, she really saw something in me. Uh, she, um, she was a professor in the biology department and she kind of took a chance to me. Um, I I feel like I wasn't the best student in undergrad. Uh, I I worked a lot, and then um, I kind of had the mentality that C's get degrees. <laughs> so, um, but uh, Dr. Angus saw something, and she was she really pushed me, and she told me that you know working in a laboratory might help. Uh, mitigate a lot of the financial burden that I was struggling with at the time. They paid more and plus they offered um, uh, a stipend for your, um, uh, for your, for the semester that you're working with. And she really encouraged me to apply. So she really did take a chance on me. I mean, considering that all the, all my uh, fellow students, uh, classmates during that time have all become like doctors and um, they went on to really great things. I, it was a little intimidating because I didn't feel like I belonged. And I think that's always something that I struggled with um, having that imposter sh syndrome, especially in graduate school and then even now in my professional career. But um, I, I really ended up liking working in the laboratory and working in a lab that allowed me to be outside and also um, go back into the laboratory. So a little bit of both, not just strictly lab work or bench work. So, Well, having to gotten to know you a little bit and your work a little bit more, I can say it's not just the other folks that went on to do some really incredible things, but, um, but you are too. And Maybe that mentorship was this this moment, but uh, what is a defining moment or event that you feel like has shaped your identity up to this point? Oh, um, so right at the tail end of my of my PhD, I went to Hawaii for for a vacation, um, and I was really excited to go on this vacation. I was. I plan months in advance and I plan all these events and, and, uh, when we got there, I was just really tired the whole time. And I was really, really sleepy. I didn't really want to do anything. And then I, um, I, I felt guilty the whole entire time I was there. 
And maybe like the last night I was there, I realized that I felt guilty for taking this vacation, taking this week off, essentially celebrating the end of my PhD. But I didn't feel like it was then because I still had a chapter left to finish. And and I just remember just sitting there being like, I'm in one of the most beautiful places in the world, yet I can't help but think that I'm failing and I'm not doing enough and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm really not taking in this moment and, and I'm, I'm just sitting here and I'm sad and upset with myself. And I really, that's when I realized that I was in a state of like major depression of coming from, um, uh, during my PhD and just setting all these expectations of myself that I couldn't accomplish. And even though I planned for this vacation and, and was really excited when it finally came, it, it didn't, it didn't really move me. And I felt really upset by the whole time of the entire, the rest of the trip, because I was just like, why I don't deserve to be here. I, this should be something that I should be celebrating, but it really wasn't. And so um, when I finally came back from vacation, I realized that that I was not in the best place mentally and that I needed to get some help. And then that's kind of where my journey of like mental health and then being and then taking a step back from my PhD, I was one chapter away from being done and I had to take a a semester off, like a step back just to be able to, you know, be mentally okay. So that was, that was a big defining moment for me because I really, um, it really did make me realize that I need to put myself first. Well, I'm so glad you discovered that. And thank you so much for sharing that. I, I feel like your experience uh, obviously, as unique as that is, uh, your own personal uh, experience is so common in graduate school for people. There's just such an emotional uh, and mental burden and burnout um, that I feel like is so common as I talk to folks on this podcast and people in my own life who have gone through similar things. So uh, hopefully your story uh, is one that's um, more common where people understand that it is okay to, to take a step back um, and practice self-care. So I'm glad you came out the other side. Right. And I, I had some of the best supporters and um, even my PhD advisor was really great throughout my PhD. It was just, it was, when you're doing a PhD, you get, you get so, even competitive within yourself, you know, you're obviously you have to have, um, some type of, um, motivation to keep going. And I think I lost that during that time. So, um, that's a, well, that's a great point. I think so, a, a lot of, uh, the issues are, are external, just external pressures from the PhD program, but equally, uh, are internal. I think a lot of folks who go through these programs are hardwired to be very hard on themselves. Um, and it sounds like maybe you're one of those people. And I don't think that's an uncommon thing uh, for people pursuing higher education. So, um, yeah, no, that's an excellent point. The internal and external kind of rigors and pressures, are, are they can be overwhelming. We can, we can, we can move on to your work because you did come out the other side and you've been doing some excellent things. So I wanted to start by talking about, um, I know you're passionate about tribal water resources, which is... Um, 
such a such a crucial issue down where where you're at. And one of your jobs and things you've been looking at is diversifying voices in water resources. So I was first, if you can just kind of give listeners a crash course on some of the water issues faced by southwestern tribes in particular. And second, maybe explain why it's important to bolster diversity and tribal involvement in water resource management. Right. So I could probably sum it up in one word right now. So it's drought. <laughs> We're going through a huge drought right now. Um, the mega drought. Um, not, well, um, so specifically, I can't really speak to a lot of the other tribes, um, but for the Navajo Nation, I know that the drought has been hard, especially since that the Navajo Nation is still in litigation and still um, trying to get their water rights. Um, out of the 22 tribes here in Arizona, um, only four of them have water rights, meaning that um, they're able to claim some of that water. Um, the other tribes um, and Navajo don't have rights yet, and they're still um, contesting a lot of the the um, the recent. Um, it was just like a few months ago that there was an update that they're still in litigation. So that was the update that they're still fighting for water rights, um, but. For, I feel like the reason why it's important to bolster diversity is we need a better understanding in, and we need all different people at the table right now. Right now, there's it's just essentially industry and state government that are at the table. And really, that's not what the state is comprised of. We're comprised of many different tribes, um, many different um uh, businesses, um, including like small businesses. And so I think there's a lot of um, smaller entities and and that do, don't get a voice at the table. So that's really what I'm trying to promote and why I think it's important. Um, for example, in Washington State, uh, they, a lot of um, like a 40 plus year litigation finally was um, settled after the tribes, the state, the cities, and the um, small businesses all came to a good to a table and finally just hashed it out. It took about 10 years, but that was something that um, everyone walked away from the, the settlement happy. So kind of having, making sure that, that everyone that uses water, which is... Um, Essentially, every living thing on Earth has a uh, has a say in what goes on, especially here in Arizona when it's really, really difficult, especially with the um, the drought going on right now. Not to get too into the weeds, and if this isn't something you know, um, it, no problem. But when you talk about four tribes who don't have water rights, what what does that look like? Does that mean they do not have? control, jurisdiction, um, kind of say in, in how the, the, the water in their land, in their, on the reservation, um, how it's used, how it's managed. Is that accurate? Um, yeah. It, it, their management has to go through, through the state, I believe. Um, again, um, a lot when I work with tribes, I – I focus more on the irrigation aspect. So um, I'm not quite sure about like drinking water or 
other potable uses. I, I mostly focus on um, what they're doing with the agriculture. Um, so I can't speak to drinking water per se, but um, I know that uh, for tribal agriculture, sorry, um, that it does have to go through their council and see um, how much is allotted for the agriculture aspects. And having paid attention to this in, 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 in your work, I'm wondering what are some of the ways that you think communication between state, federal agencies, and tribes could be improved when it comes to water access, water resources, and what that, what that better communication would look like? Right. And that's kind of where my, um, my nonprofit that I developed come in. And it's more about uh, developing communication and understanding what I feel that is lacking is that um, people don't know how to communicate and work with tribes. Um, a lot of the times, tribes don't have a written language. Um, and so a lot of the the history is told through stories and artwork and um, song, dance, um, and other forms of media. So when, when non-Natives come in and, you know, mention like, oh, you should read a book or you should, you know, read this policy or something. It's not, it, it's not information that will be retained, especially within um, tribes, just because that's not how we grew up to, to communicate and to learn. Um, learning is very hands-on for us. Um, we retain so much more by, like, um, talking about it in a story, like I was saying, or even visually, um, it ha it's so much better than to read a policy or to go to a, po a class just um, discussing policy. So uh, making sure that's, that the information, um, whether that be from um, agriculture policy, we then translate that that information and try to um, make it into a form that is better to understand, whether that be like a, a digital form like um, media, uh, like videos or um, essentially podcasts explaining it and also um, trying to explain it in their native language to, not, um, to natives um, and vice versa. A lot of the times... Um, when natives go to um, discuss these water problems, I feel like um, they end up talking and they can talk and talk and talk. And um, not they're not really saying what they need to say. I mean, they are, but, but they're telling it in a, in a story or something. And a lot of non-natives don't quite understand that. So... Also, getting some of these historical or these stories that have been passed down for generations um, out there and on in media form as well, so that non-natives can view that and under, and have a better understanding of why water and other um, and water resources are so important to natives. Um, so, just trying to bridge that that. Um, the miscommunication and how, and the misunderstanding and how that 
um, different groups learn in different ways. Um, so we're really trying to bridge that and make sure that everyone has a good understanding and the best access to the um, agriculture policies here in Arizona. Yeah, and you mentioned your your nonprofit. Um, tell me about that. Tell me about starting a nonprofit. What it what it what it's called first of all, and and what's some of the work on the ground uh, now or, or what you plan to do in the future looks like. Um, yeah, so my nonprofit is um, called um, Irrigation Resources, reaching Indigenous growers and tribal entities. And uh, if you're just wondering, it actually is it's an acronym for Irrigate, and um, it's actually Irrigate Easy right now because we're we're just focusing on the tribes and everything in Arizona. And so what we're really trying to do, again, like I said before, was just bridge this um, understanding and making sure that um, that both natives and non-natives um, have resources available to them uh, in, in many different forms of media so that they can... Uh, um, so that they they're able to make better decisions and choices uh, regarding water uh, water resources. Um, yeah, so right now that's that's pretty much it. Uh, my nonprofit in a nutshell. Uh, right now we're just in the beginning s- stages. Um, it's been a process. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a business person. I'm not. I'm a scientist by. Training and so it has been a completely different world and um, something that I'm not quite familiar with. Uh, luckily, I have um, the MIT Saul Fellowship, so they have been such a huge resource and help in helping me develop my nonprofit. However, it, it is a lot of, of work, and I'm and I notice that I'm constantly googling you know, terminology that I never thought I would have to do. <laughs> like, um, uh, who's your, like, what's your EIN number? And I'm like, oh my goodness, what is that? <laughs> We're a nonprofit. And I'm like, okay, I need to Google that real fast. Um, but yeah, there's things that uh, I'm quickly realizing that we are right now we're small. It's just me and my um my web designer right now. Um, but we're working so much and on top of that I'm doing my my job here at the University of Arizona as well. So um yeah, we may quickly need to acquire more people um a lot sooner than I thought we did because we are um going through a lot and um, I feel bad for my web designer who is also um, going out to a lot of the different tribes up in northern Arizona and filming a lot of for me since I'm down here in southern Arizona and I can't go up there all the time. I wonder if there's a lesson in that, uh, in what, what you all are trying to do when we look at federal or state policies um, I'm thinking about where I live in Michigan. There, you know, there are frameworks within where, where agencies work with tribes in the state. There's 12 tribes here, and every tribe is different, you know. And there's what 500, you know, 538, I believe. I may have that number off. Um, federally recognized tribes, and 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 
having a framework to work with tribes, you know, quote unquote, uh, doesn't doesn't look the same for every tribe. So it sounds like you all are trying to make this uh, much more culturally competent by working with individual tribes and within the way they learn and their kind of um, the historical context of water and, and what that looks like. Is that accurate? Right. And um, we are looking at all the different policies that each tribe has because each one of them is a little different. Um, so we we do, luckily being here at the University of Arizona, we have some really great researchers that have already built a lot of these relationships with these tribes. So I feel like um, I have been really been able to ask them and rely on them to be able to um, to enter these tribes because even though I am Navajo, um, I may not be as you know accepted in another tribe just because I mean these are still um, each tribe has had issues dealing with um, universities with state government and and so I mean. A, Essentially, a lot of tribes are very wary of outsiders, so in- including myself. It's not like I'm an exemption or anything just because I'm Navajo. Um, so I'm very lucky that the university ha- does have a lot of uh, connections with all the different tribes that I can um, reach out to these researchers, and they're able to help me. So I know one issue, especially for rural communities is access to labs or resources to test to test water, whether that's irrigation or, or potable drinking water. But there's some encouraging signs on that front. I was wondering if you could talk about some technologies that you see as maybe bridging this gap and giving access to communities who maybe didn't have it before. Right. And I feel like that's such an important part. I think that in lat or I'm sorry, in field testing is important and it's not just for rural communities. It's for anyone that deals with food safety. Um, in 2018, there is that huge romaine lettuce outbreak um, in Yuma, Arizona. So if there was infield testing, then I'm sure that they could have caught it a lot earlier than they did. Um, so, So it's not just rural communities, I feel like essentially, especially for food safety, there needs to be uh, better in-field technologies to be able to predict um, some of the pathogens that they're testing. Uh, but it's hard. It's also one of those really things that's really difficult um, because you're sampling out in the environment. And so you're you're going to always have those caveats, you know, wind's always going to change, water's going to, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to work out in the environment and in the field. So, um, but some of the technology that I'm really excited and I really want to try and get my hands on and work around the Navajo Nation um, is doing uh, a lot of like sequencing, te- um, sequencing testing and um, uh um, identification, so point source um, identification, meaning that I want to see exactly what is uh, 
essentially pooping in the water. And when you, so whether that be birds or bears or, you know, sheep or dogs or something, I want to be able to pinpoint that source. So those are some new technologies that are starting to come out that are in field and that are just about the size of an iPhone. So um, that would be very, very cool to have and to utilize that, especially in a place like um, on the reservations, or like you said, where there's not a, like access to a laboratory since a lot, since some of these samples you need to get on ice immediately and then you need a sample within four to six hours or else the testing fails. And when you have to drive four to six hours just to get to a town, it, it's not feasible to do some of these testing. So um, I am looking forward and I would really like to get my hands on some of the, the new technologies that are out there. And so you, as you mentioned, you are a relatively relatively new mother. I don't know the age of your child, but I know this is a relatively new thing. And I know this was also a life changer for you, as I think happens to a lot of folks. Can you talk about uh, that experience of pursuing a PhD? Uh, you are started a nonprofit. You seem like you have plenty going on and having a baby. Yeah. Um, Ethan, that's my son's name. He is three. Um he is just my favorite person in the world. Um, he, I just love him so much. Uh, yeah, but it was very, again, he was a surprise, <laughs> um, both to me and my husband. Um, at the time, my husband was in medical school, and I was just, I finished my break. Um, it's, it's kind of funny, the timeline. Um, I did mention that I was in Hawaii and I decided to take a break about a semester. And then the following semester, when I finally re-entered, um, that's when I found out I was pregnant. So people always joke, they're like, you had a little bit too much fun during your little break. <laughs> so um, I guess that's true. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I was pregnant and I was finishing up my last chapter I was literally three weeks away from defending. Um, my son wasn't was not expected to be born until twelve more weeks, so I was like, "Okay, I'm right there." However, I just I met with my advisors, and I just remember feeling like really sick that morning with my advisors, and I was just like, "I don't, I don't feel so great." And then they're getting excited. They're like, "Your your dissertation's." pretty much complete. You just need to do these last few edits and then we could submit it to your committee. And I was so close and I was just like, okay, that sounds good. And my plan was to defend and then, um, you know, essentially have a baby. <laughs> like, so I was getting, that was my timeline. Um, however, right after I met with my advisors a couple of weeks before I was about to defend, um, I got sick, really sick that night. And then I ended up in the hospital and, the doctors then told me that um, that they were going to have to um, induce um, my son, who was um, born around 11 weeks early at the time. Um, so that was really scary. And uh, I... I was I was super sick. I was in the hospital for about two weeks myself. Um, my son was in the hospital for a little over two months um, in the NICU. And that was such a... A surreal experience and I think that if I if I didn't take that time for to mentally prepare um uh, myself and get into a better better state of mind I, I don't think I would have been able to 
get through that situation as well as I did. Um, a lot of people were very impressed by, um, or even just astounded that when, when my son was in the NICU and I would spend all day with him, you know, um, cause he had a lot of different procedures going on, um, both for his lungs and his heart. And it was just a very stressful time. But the only thing that made me feel better was when I was holding him and I could read to him and I, and I feel really bad now because I didn't read to him baby books. I read to him a lot of the like um, environmental microbiology journals. <laughs> so he read. He was able to listen to a lot of um, a lot of different type of uh, uh, like point source contamination um, emerging journal articles while he was in the NICU. Um, the nurses would laugh because they would be walking by and I'd be talking about wastewater treatment and different types of um, techniques. And they're like, well, he seems to be fine. He's just enjoying it sitting with you. And uh, so, and I was also sitting there a lot of the time um, on my iPad uh, doing edits and doing, trying to finish up my, my dissertation. Um, So yeah, it, it was, it was, it was such a weird, um, a weird, a weird end to my, my PhD for sure. Um, but when I was finally able to bring my son home and finally able to defend, it was, it was nice to, because I was able to actually, uh, focus on my dissertation and actually defending my dissertation and focus on not having my son, you know, worrying about my son in the hospital. He was sitting right next to me the entire time he was sleeping, um, he was only about like four months at the time. So he, it was, it was great. And I, and, um, that was about a year apart from when I went to Hawaii to then. And so just that whole year difference from, um, you know, being such a, such a, such in a bad state to like essentially not even wanting to get up to do anything to, you know, being able to defend, um, with my newborn baby by my side and just being happy and, and accepting um, and doing everything in my power that I could to bring the, de- the best defense that I could. So, um, yeah, so yeah, it was, it was a really surreal experience when I think about it now that so much can happen within a year. So, yeah, well, that is a, that is a really beautiful story. And I am so happy to hear that, uh, it seems to have turned out okay. I also like to think when you say that he's your favorite person, I, I think it would be funny if a parent was like, you know, he's like my third favorite. He's like <laughs> my third favorite person. <laughs> uh, and I, I assume that he is, uh, uh, he will be on this podcast as a microbiologist in, um, you know, 18 years or so. I'll be asking him, how did you get into microbiology? And you say, I don't know, but it seemed like from the very beginning, it's all I could think about. All I could dream about was, you know, what was I, I was, I was reading a lot about beaver feces and trying to figure out, uh, beaver, um, different types of, uh, point source for beavers. And I was, I read that, that article like three times just because I was so fascinated by the methods. So he read, so I'm sure he's probably going to be like, I just have dreams about beavers pooping or something. (laughs) So I have a couple more questions for you, Val. Um, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. It's been so great getting to know you and your story. Um, 
what are you optimistic about? I'm, I'm, it sounds like uh, there are some new technologies. Um, there are some, some, there's communication between tribes and resource agencies. I'm just wondering in your field, in your nonprofit, what are you looking at and feeling hopeful about? Um, I'm feeling hopeful more about um, the communication aspect. I feel like uh, it, people are getting, uh, are starting to understand that just because you say something doesn't mean that people listen to what you have to say. And it's really how you say it really affects how people listen. And um, and what I mean by that is like um, people can go ahead and talk and talk and talk all they want. And, um, but it's not until you identify or like be able to connect with them and, and have a, better understanding of each other that they're able to listen and actually take what you what they listen and what they are learning and make that into action so I'm a little bit more hopeful about that and I'm hoping that this um this this new change that I'm seeing and it's not just within the state of Arizona but a lot of other states about um tribes finally getting a seat at the table that that is something that um it's not just a, you know, a, a fad, like a DEI fad or anything like that, that it's actually here to stay. And that, that there's so much that we can learn from each other. Excellent. Well, it's, it's really great to hear that. Um, and I ask those questions because it can be so doom and gloom covering the environment. And it's always nice to have doses of optimism from folks like yourself. So I have three rapid fire questions and you can just answer with a word or a phrase, uh, coffee or tea. Tea. My favorite thing to grow in the garden is herbs. My one guilty pleasure. True kind podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and this one, you don't have to just stick it to a word or a phrase. You can give me a little more if you want. But what is the last book that you read for fun? I read last night, The Grumpy Monkey to my son. <laughs> Um, that's the last book I read, uh, before then, I'm pretty sure it was something about Waldorf child education or something, but yeah, the last, but the last book I read was The Grumpy Monkey, which is about a a grumpy monkey. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, Val, this has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you taking time. I'm so glad you're in this program and have a great day. All right. Thank you so much. All right, everybody go out and check out the Grumpy Monkey book. I know that might be a good Christmas present for one of my nieces or nephews. I hope they're not listening. So that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Val. It is exciting to kick off the podcast with Cohort 4. I'm really excited for you to meet all of the other great folks that we are working with this time around. If you enjoyed this podcast or you support our program, go visit our website, agentsofchangeinej.org, and while you're there, click the donate button. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Loria Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. 
Email our team at agentsofchangenej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at agentsofchangenej.org. That newsletter is an excellent way to stay on top of all the work that both fellows are doing within the program and outside of the program. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time for the last podcast of 2022 when I speak to Maria Paula Rubiano, our assistant editor, about her work for the program, and we both take a look ahead to 2023. Have a great week and a great holiday season, folks.